This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 101 is the great-grandson of C.G. Jung, Dr. Thomas Fischer, in Vienna, Austria. Born in 1971, he grew up in Kusnak, Switzerland, and studied history, political science, and international and public law at the University of Brussels and the University of Zurich, where he earned a Ph.D. He then went on to conduct postdoctoral research with a specialization in the history of the neutral states in the Cold War and lecture at the universities of Beirut, Vienna, and Helsinki, and at the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Development Studies in Geneva. In 2008, he began working for the newly established Foundation of the Works of C.G. Jung, created by the Community of Heirs, to maintain and develop the literary and artistic estate of Carl Gustav Jung and his wife, Emma Jung Rauschenbach. He served as director of the foundation from 2013 to 2020 and is co-editor of their first publication, The Art of C.G. Jung, released in 2018. Currently, he is involved with a number of new editorial projects of the foundation, including the publication of the original Protocols for Memories, Dreams, Reflections. This spring, Dr. Fisher will be presenting Jung after the publication of The Red Book, a view from the foundation of the works of C.G. Jung, at the Aranos Conference, Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions, to be held April 28th through May 1st in Ascona, Switzerland. Other presenters include speaking of Jung guests Marie Stein, Nancy Swift-Berlotti, and Frank McMillan. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, January 12th, 2022, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I would like to start with telling our listeners how exactly you are related to Jung and how, along with your fellow heirs, have created this foundation, the foundation of the works of C.G. Jung. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my relation to Carl and Emma Jung-Rauschenbach uh, goes through my mother's line. My grandmother, uh, Helene Hörny Jung, known as Lil, was the youngest of the five children of Carl and Emma Jung. And I actually, as a student, lived uh, in the house of my grandmother, and that was when I first got a taste of the business, uh, the family business around publishing Jung and keeping the legacy alive. She was your grandmother. She lived to be 100, right? She passed away uh, just in 2014. Yeah, she was an impressive woman, and, and it was uh, uh, a great blessing that she kept uh, a very clear mind until her very last days. And she was a, uh, an important point of reference, a source of information, even, even uh, in my time when I started working for the foundation still. She actually wrote, I found, uh, the afterword 
for a book titled Love and Sacrifice, The Life of Emma Young. So she's also written books uh, herself, uh, right? I, I, I've only been able to find them in German, though. That's, that's correct. And uh, so initially, she, um, she was a tailor. Uh, uh, she quit school. But then late in her life or midlife, her husband died early and obviously, and that her own children, including my mother, uh, grew up, went out of the house. Uh, and I think that is when she turned to, uh, to, to new subjects and mm -hmm. discovered the, the psychological interpretation of uh, icons, religious icons as her uh, as her topic, and that is what she wrote about. I mm. think two or three books at fairly old age already. I think the first, her first book, she published in her seventies, if I remember correctly, oh. and that was quite a big thing. Mm -hmm. And they are still available on Amazon. I'll provide links to those in the show notes. And I'd like to ask you about uh, the current heirs who are active. There is a photo in Sarah Corbett's story that ran in the New York Times Magazine uh, that was concurrent with the release of the Red Book in 2009. It's titled Holy Grail of the Unconscious. And it the photo is of three of Jung's heirs, Peter Jung, Andreas Jung, and Ulrich Horney. And I'd like for you to tell us who they are. Yes, uh, I certainly remember this picture and uh, I'm very familiar with the three men you mentioned. So, uh, and they were uh, each in their capacity very important in uh, setting up our foundation and bringing the Red Book to publication. Uh, so rightfully, they are the ones who were portrayed in this picture and uh, coverage. So um, um, you have Andreas and Peter Jung, who are brothers. Andreas, uh, in, uh, Andreas Jung, uh, and I'm uh, sure a couple of our listeners will know until today lives in the house that C.G. and Emma Young built in Küsnacht. So many have uh, come across his name when they visited the house. He also uh, has, uh, through his father, inherited the family archive with the more private material of C.G. and Carl Jung. And that is one point uh, of contact I had during my time uh, as the director of the foundation, uh, whenever we were looking into that material, we would work together with him. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as such, uh, he was important to access material related and unlocking the contents of the Red Book. His brother, Peter Jung himself, a psychiatrist, um, he, together with Ulrich Herney, who is a direct uncle of mine, uh, thus a son of my grandmother, Lil Herney, uh, he and Peter uh, were very key in establishing the foundation of the works of C.G. Jung. They belonged to 
the committee uh, already established by the uh, uh, Society of Ears to deal with the publication affairs. And uh, in the 1990s, early 2000s, it was a long process um, of transferring the copyrights that uh, the descendants inherited uh, into the found in, and established the foundation. Uh, the idea then was the family had grown uh, to a substantial number. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jung and Emma had, Carl and Emma had five children. They all had children. Um, and as such, uh, doing the business and doing the work of looking after the literary estate uh, of their predecessors became more complicated. At this, At the same time, of the publication of the collected works and the dwindling of the currency exchange rate from the dollar to the Swiss franc. Uh, it, uh, they were looking for ways of, of uh, keeping the money that came from the royalties and reinvesting that in new projects. Mm-hmm. So that um, in a somewhat <laughs> Uh, is somewhat a short version of, of uh, how the foundation, what the basic idea of establishing the foundation was. To make it formally um, independent of the community of ears, because not everyone was still interested uh, uh, to be in, in being, being involved in that, but keeping the knowledge uh, and that was possible by those in the family who kept engaged and also um, were willing to work for the foundation, uh, supply members for the first board and supply uh, their knowledge to the editorial work and the research that is undertaken until today by by the foundation. So, and Ulrich and uh, Pete were very key in in bringing about the process that led to the establishment uh, of the foundation, which surely, uh, I remember this, I was a teenager, I think at the time, and uh, or a young adult, and I remember long discussions and how to best set this up and uh, who, what everyone in the family would think of it and which was the right way to go. And it was only uh, thanks to the persistence um, and also uh, to to the work uh, and and the thought that went in into the establishment of the foundation that it, it became possible to to set up the framework that allowed us to continue working in the way uh, in which the foundation works today. Mm-hmm. So uh, the former community of the heirs of C. G. Young disbanded in two thousand eight, and it's now. It sort of morphed into the foundation of the works of C.G. Jung, which is the exclusive owner of all of the copyrights of the literary and visual artistic works of both uh, Carl and Emma Jung. So you mentioned the house, and I would like to jump to that because the Jung family home there on Seastras in Kusnacht It was not open to the public when I visited in 2015. So 
I just saw the front of the house and took a lot of photos and just was in awe of how beautiful it is. But it is now open to the public as a museum. Would you tell us about that? Yes, very much so. Uh, you are right. And this brings us to an important distinction. Uh, when uh, Corleon passed away, the house was passed on to his only son, Franz Jung. Uh, so basically, as, as, as all the um, material goods were um, uh, distribu distributed according to his will among uh, his descendants, the copyrights, uh, they are an immaterial good uh, and they cannot be split uh, in the proper sense among all the ears. So they, for, for this reason, the community of ears uh, continued to exist. But that ex uh, around uh, everything involving the copyrights. But with the house, the situation is different. Mm. And so the house went to the only son, Franz Jung, uh, and in the next generation, it went, as I mentioned previously, to Andreas Jung, the youngest of Franz Jung's uh, children. Andreas and his family have lived there uh, for a long time, to, uh, first uh, together with uh, Franz Jung still, and when he passed away in the 90s with his family alone. But he uh, set up plans to preserve the house as a lieu de mémoire, a central place to remember and to experience uh, the work of Jung. And he was finally able to build up a different foundation, which nowadays which uh, looks after the house, uh, uh, looks after the maintenance of the prem premises, and has established a small museum. The situation currently is that, that half of the house is still inhabited by Andreas Jung and his wife, Freni. These are the upper floors, whereas they vacated the, the ground floor and the library and study. And, and actually returned it, uh, part, part of it was returned into its previous uh, form as it was uh, at the moment of Jung's death. So as a visitor, you basically are able to see the, in the, uh, the family room, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, at the dining, um, and most importantly, the study where he produced a lot of his works, uh, where he saw patients, you are able uh, to see that as a small uh, museum today. But the idea is, is, is not a classic museum. It, it's really that you can have the experience. And they've done a wonderful job. And it's really thanks to Andreas Jung and, and those who joined him in that undertaking and, and are doing the work nowadays around the museum that much of this spirit uh, is still mm. kept alive when you're in the building. I go there myself every now and again for 
research, be it in the library or in the family archive. And they've really done it also because uh, Franz Jung and, and Andreas Jung, although they lived there with their families, they kept a lot of the initial uh, furniture uh, installations. Uh, they renovated very carefully. Andreas Jung himself is is a, an architect and uh, has a keen sense for keeping the built, the literally built legacy of of Jung's life and. Uh, and in the past few years, since they opened up the museum, also a number of objects, um, also documents, but objects, even clothes, uh, pieces of furniture have actually returned uh, to the museum. They were mostly, or some of them were, were scattered among the, uh, the, the family, the wider uh, relatives. And as they opened up the museum, many, many offered to return these things because they felt it was, uh, it was one thing to keep them as personal memorabilia, but it was another thing to share them with the wider public and those interested in the life and work of Carl and Emma Jung. And from what I understand, there are special exhibitions periodically in the home. The current one is titled C.G. Jung, Early Visual and Creative Works. It's been extended until the autumn of 2022. And the house of C.G. Jung has a beautiful website. Uh, there will be a link to it in the show notes. And on that website, there is also a virtual tour that you can take with some really lovely photos of the inside of the house, which I had obviously I had never seen before. And the and the photos are just wonderful. So uh, I want to give my thanks uh, to your family for providing that. I'd like to also talk about um, Jung's private library and his papers. So you were mentioning uh, the copyrights and and what people inherited. But According to his last will, uh, he gave his scientific literary estate to the Eteha in Zurich. So his paper collection is part of the Eteha Zurich University archives, and they are accessible. Uh, would you tell us about that? Yes, very much so. Uh, that is correct. And uh uh, that's an important piece of information for anyone interested in, in going into deeper research beyond the published uh, literature. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole discipline nowadays uh, which uh, um, was developed in the 1990s in, in the history of psychology. And obviously Carl Jung and his work is an important part of this history. And uh, his uh, what is called the scientific papers uh, at ETH are an important source of information for anyone interested in that domain. That contains uh, that contains uh, almost uh, all his manuscript material. Uh, that is what was at least in the house at the time of his passing away. Mm -hmm. That also contains his. Um, professional um, correspondence 
that's another that's over 30,000 letters which are preserved there and only the the, the more private uh, the private correspondence that is the family correspondence uh, and his private notebooks agendas uh, things the red book uh, the black books they were kept uh, uh, as he uh, stated himself or stated as well with the family but the rest went uh, to the ETH and that uh, since the opening of that uh, uh, paper collection in the late 1980s, early 1990s, it is accessible and uh, people have become more aware. It's actually one of the uh, most visited collections in that archive, I've mm. mm. been by the responsibles there. Uh, so it draws a lot of attention. Uh, summertime is usually busy with people coming from all over the world, in fact, to, to dig deeper. <laughs> and yeah. Jung's private library, that's separate, right? And that's, that's still in the home. And in fact, the photo I have of you for this episode, which is on the episode page on the website, speakingofjung.com, is you inside Jung's private library. And I was trying to read all the book spines in the, in the photo, and it's like mostly all Goethe. It's a, a lovely photo. So would you tell us about his private library? Yes. So also, according uh, to his will, he decided that uh, his study books, uh, all the literature he collected throughout his life, his academic life, his studying life, his publishing life, shall be kept also as uh, a source of further research. Uh, it, and it shall, they, uh, these books, shall be kept in their present location uh, as long as possible, which is the house of C. G. Jung uh, with the museum today. Uh, and that uh, uh, gives us the, the beauty of actually having the books in their place where he actually worked with them. Mm -hmm. The interesting constellation as an aside here is that the books were uh, considered as part uh, of the heritage of the whole community of heirs. Uh, the bookshelves, the building uh, belonged to the house. So it is today still the foundation of the works of C. G. Jung that uh, is the owner of that library, the books. The bookshelves belong uh, to the foundation that runs the museum and <laughs> owns okay. the premises today. But that uh, tells you something about how close the, the collaboration is and, and has to be to make uh, things work. The library is, is, is a, a, a beautiful and, and fascinating testimony to the way uh, uh, of uh, uh, how Carl Jung was working to his trajectory through different dis disciplines and study materials. I, I mean, the usual re request we receive is, is from someone editing material or doing a PhD, and uh, he finds traces of uh, Carl Jung cites a certain author or work, and then the question comes to us, uh, 
So is that book still, did he own that book? Uh, are there any notes in the margin? If he has had a copy, are there any notes in the margin? Are there, uh, are there perhaps uh, um, separate notes from his reading? And then is, uh, that is the point where we go into the library. Sometimes it is possible to have a researcher at the library. Uh, that was the idea of Carl Jung himself, that uh, scholars that were interested in specific aspects uh, should be able to consult these works. So we help them to access them, uh, those books, and, and see what we find there and uh, for me, as a trained historian, this is, I, I think, this one of the beauties of, uh, of my work for the foundation, when we are able to collect the different pieces and, and see how ideas, uh, how he developed ideas, how he enriched his own ideas with the lecture of other authors, um, and uh, how his thoughts and theories, uh, methods developed over time. Uh, this, the library and other archival material, they become even more important today as almost nobody is still around that has actually been part of his scholarly and uh, psychological journey, so mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, and then, therefore, we need to rely on what is left uh, in, in writing. And the library is part of that legacy. I would like to use this opportunity to point out the beautiful book uh, that Sono Shamdazani uh, published, uh, C.G. Jung, a biography in books uh, around the library. Uh, and and uh, Jung's reading of some of the, the key works uh, from his library and how they fit in with the development of his own uh, texts and manuscripts. Uh, that's so uh, wonderfully illustrated also with, with beautiful images, um, uh, volume that gives you a good entry point to the library of C.G. Jung. Yes, thank you for mentioning that book. I will have a link to it in the show notes. Again, it's titled C.G. Jung, A Biography in Books by a guest on this podcast, Professor Sonu Shamdasani. And you yourself, Dr. Fisher, wrote an article that appeared in the International Journal of Jungian Studies back in 2011 titled The Alchemical Rare Book Collection of C.G. Jung. Would you tell us what's in that paper? Yeah. Uh, this was actually one of my uh, early tasks. Um, I started working for the foundation, I think in 2008, and uh, at the time uh, we were approached by a professor of chemistry from the ETA Zurich who had an interest in uh, the, the old alchemical literature. It was known that at the time already that, that Carl Jung had a precious collection of around 200 works of alchemical rare books in his library. And the suggestion was uh, to digitize uh, these books, to, for one, to uh, preserve them if any damage ever occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, for the other also to make it, them accessible. 
in a wider framework of a of a of a large scale digitization project that was uh, carried out at the time by the ETH and actually uh, most university libraries in Zurich, which were digitizing their rare books. And this special collection of, uh, in the Jung Library was considered so special that they uh, came up with the suggestion if we didn't want to join that larger project uh, with the digitization of the book. And, and that was, that was, I think that was one of the first projects I did in full responsibility. So I was bringing these books to, to the Digi Center at the ETH, um, where they were scanned, uh, doing the, the back and forth. We could only take a couple of, around 10 books at the time <laughs> for insurance reasons, because some of them are valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in uh, in the end result, this uh, allowed the publication on this uh, uh, digital platform, which is called e-rara.ch. And in the article uh, you mentioned, I was I was uh, uh, speaking about that. I mean, this is how I uh, came in touch with uh, through this project work. Obviously, I, I had first to understand which were the books uh, that uh, had to be included, uh, what category of of rare books he actually collected. So we found a um, file with um, orders at book antiquarians uh, from his days where he uh, was actually looking and specifically seeking um, such volumes. So that allowed me to trace his hunt for the alchemical treasures he collected in form of these old uh, volumes, which I thought was a fascinating task. And obviously it opened up uh, for me the door uh, also to to his understanding or his interest in the psychological reading of the alchemical yeah. literature, which is widely known today, and uh, various authors have pointed out that that Jung's way of studying and looking uh, in, a, in a psychological way at, at the processes that were des- are described in this literature uh, actually triggered a tremendous new uh, revival uh, in in alchemy in in the 20th century. Uh, Of course, from a specific angle, but one that allowed and and, uh, raised the interest of many that before didn't have anything to do with alchemy that was uh, seen often as just a stage of pre-modern chemistry. so that is that is a, I think that was a, the main um, point of the article to to illustrate uh, um, how the how Jung became a collector uh, of such alchemical rare prints. Uh, it wasn't uh, the article is is not necessarily giving you an interpretation or, or an explanation of his. Uh, psychology and his understanding, but really 
uh, at what time did he start? What motivated him to start looking for these books? What specific? There's different categories in the alchemical literature, and and it's no surprise that that uh, the collection shows he was specifically interested in in, in transformation processes mm -hmm. uh, because they they have a, an obvious uh, parallel to the process of individuation. Uh, and this is where he could uh, link his own thoughts to these very long-standing uh, philosophical uh, traditions, if you want to say so. So I would like now to talk about uh, three books, The Red Book, The Art of C.G. Jung, and Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I have to ask you this question. Uh, it was a big question back in 2009, early 2010, after the release of the Red Book, I attended a presentation at the Jung Center here in Chicago, given by an analyst who was at the Rubin Museum for the exhibition of the Red Book. He, he was asked a question uh, by somebody in the audience as to whether or not Jung intended for the Red Book to be published. And I would like to ask you that question and then have you tell us a little bit about how that came to be. That's a good question. <laughs> and one that the ears pondered for uh, a long time and, yeah. and weren't sure about in the beginning uh, what, uh, what, what was his wish? Uh, what was his idea? Uh, one problem the ears faced at the time was they couldn't go back and ask him. And, and he didn't state anything explicitly, but they were left the red book, so he didn't destroy it. In the meantime, uh, but that is only years after the publication, uh, we found uh, material that clearly uh, documents that Jung himself considered publishing the Red Book. Um, but for reasons we uh, can only speculate, decided not to at the time. Uh, the speculation, and it's an obvious one, is that he was afraid that if he would publish this work, his reputation as a scholar would be gone. Uh, psychology was a very new discipline, which had a, which had, had already uh, was on the, was, cr was on the, was criticized for being uh, non-scientific. Um, uh, you know, when, whenever a new discipline emerges, the field is usually already occupied by other disciplines. In this case, there were the medical doctors, the psychiatrists, uh, philosophy, uh, and there's, uh, there's, there, there's a fear that a new discipline is going to take away something from you. I think this, this is what, what psychology experienced at, at its uh, early stages. So it had to uh, carve out its niche and then uh, grow from there. And I think he was simply afraid that 
if at that time, and, and, and for what I want to say is for that reason, he and others were so keen, at least in the early period, to prove that there was a science uh, on, on rational ground that we are almost sure that, and, and this is also what the material I refer to seems to show, he was afraid that, that he, uh, he would simply no longer be seen as a scientist and, 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 and therefore damage a reputation which wasn't fully established at the time. And also, in a sense, and I guess that, that was the big question for the family at the time, I wasn't involved, I was too young. I mean, I was aware of the discussions, but I wasn't part of the discussions. Uh, the, the, the main fear was, uh, this is too personal. Um, one problem with that question was, what does it all mean? What is the Red Book? Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, without uh, a detailed study, uh, and contextualization that was only undertaken in the course of the, the editorial work uh, by Professor Shonsani on the basis of the groundwork that was laid by my uncle Ulrich Herney, Peter Jung, Andreas Jung that we mentioned earlier, who were able to bring by some information uh, from the family uh, also anecdotal evidence, it was only then possible to slowly understand what this was. I mean, Jung spoke him, I mean, he broke, he broke the silence in, 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 uh, in his um, memories where, where he speaks about his, his uh, Red Book experience, yeah. uh, the confrontation with the unconscious. But I think for the family, it was, it was very unclear uh, um, what it really was and how I think there was a great fear of how it would be received would it be seen as just uh, a product of mental illness or was it and that is what I think became clear uh, in the course of the editorial work and also in the course of or in the wake of publication uh, that this was a very uh, very much. I mean, he, he was in, a, in, in dire straits at these times and he was troubled, but he found a way of working through these troubles in the yes. book, the Red Book. Uh, but I think that partly explains some of the, the initial hesitancy uh, of whether to make this material available uh, to a wider audience. And it certainly explains why it took so long uh, from the moment of a decision to publish and then actually being ready for publication be because you really had to uh, sit down with this material to understand it. There were a few witnesses. Uh, so he had shown the, he had shown the book uh, during his lifetime uh, to some of his companions. Uh, obviously also Emma, uh, was aware of it, uh, so he discussed it, and and and, and we do think he sh he's shown uh, he's shown it to others also to find out their reactions. Mm -hmm. So for sure he he was pondering, but but at the time uh, he wasn't ready for it, and and apparently uh, that decision remained on, until the very end. But but we 
uh, it is, I mean, he was aware that, that at least at, when he, when he uh, at the end of his life, he was aware that he, he had become a public figure, that his work had found a strong uh, foothold uh, around the globe. Uh, and to him, it was no question early on that uh, the Red Book was a vital source of anything he published after the 1910s, 1920s, uh, and he said so on various occasions. So he was aware that this this was uh, a key source uh, to further understand his work, his ideas, his psychology, uh, but has but hesitant uh, to let it um, go out in the open. During his lifetime, I, I guess I guess his. I mean, we're speculating, but you could say he probably speculated uh, that at one point uh, someone among his or the descendants would have to make a decision if the time was right, and that moment was found uh, around at the time of the publication. Yes. And it certainly was the right time, I believe, because of how well it was received. We can only, yeah, that's a good, uh, I mean, we, we can only, uh, uh, with hindsight, we know, uh, we know that some of the fears were unjustified. Um, and I mean, the reception has been beyond anyone's expectation and, and, uh, it's stunning us still today that the Red Book, uh, I mean, it keeps selling copies and that tells us, and, and, and by now it has reached an audience far beyond the identified Jungian readership. Oh, yeah. And, and it doesn't stop. And, and, and I mean, one of, one of the persons who clearly saw the the appeal, but also the uniqueness of this work uh, was, was late um, uh, editor-in-chief Jim Mayers at Norton. Uh, mm -hmm. he, 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 he was the one person in the publishing world of the many re initial rejections uh, by other publishing houses that, who said this, this, needs, this needs to be presented uh, and, and it needs to be presented in this very rich uh, format that had been chosen in the end, and that people will be fascinated yeah. uh, by the rich, the, the richness uh, of this material. And this is exactly what happened. But but it, but at the time, uh, expectations were low, um, low or uncertain, uncertain how it would be received. It was, if it was something that would remain uh, in the court in, in a somewhat, um, uh, in, in, a, in a certain corner, so to speak, uh, with a limited audience, but, but it, has, it, has, it, has reached, it has reached an attention that no one ever could see coming. But it is telling because it, it shows how how, it, how his work and his life is, f fascinates people, his experience 
uh, he's searching. Obviously, is a tale that many can relate to. Yes, yes. And I just want to say for me personally, I never thought uh, in reading the Red Book that it was uh, a sign of mental illness. That is something that Jung brought to my life is that it's not mental illness, it's just the human condition. And that brings me to what's usually called, referred to as his autobiography, but it's not exactly. And that is Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which on the cover of the book, it says, recorded and edited by Anila Yaffe. And it was published posthumously uh, right after Jung's death. And I just noticed in the introduction, which I hadn't remembered, that Jung said, uh, I have had to promise myself that the results would not be published in my lifetime. So would you tell us about memories and about the project that you're working on right now with Professor Shamdasani and Dr. Robert Hinshaw on the protocols for memories, dreams, reflections? Yes, for those who are aware uh, of memory streams and, 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 and the genesis of memory streams uh, uh, and reflections, um, the, the title page uh, states uh, clearly how this project came about, namely that Jung was approached uh, by more than one publisher uh, with the request to write his autobiography. Um, he declined partly to, due to old, uh, old age, also because he was still writing his own, uh, working on his own uh, texts. Yeah. And didn't necessarily want to spend his final energy or his, his, his remaining energy on writing an autobiography. At the same time, uh, during the, the 1950s, he came to the he was finally convinced by then publisher Kurt Wolf that uh, if he wasn't involved uh, in some way, uh, then someone else will write the biographies. And and uh, and he uh, decided that he at least wanted to be available. And the format they decided on was was modeled. Uh, uh, was following uh, Goethe's um, biography in the form of interviews with uh, talks with Eckermann, uh, and that is and and that is what what he was willing to do. So he would sit uh, down with his then uh, private secretary Angela Jaffe and talk uh, rather freely about his life encounters his works, psychology, uh, his inner experiences. And she would then, uh, so she would sit with him and take uh, stenographic notes, uh, put them into longhand as she went home. And from uh, those notes started to form this in a uh, coherent book or in a structured, in a more structured book. Uh, but uh, in the course of these 
interviews, conversations. Uh, obviously, uh, there was more material that went into the final book, and that was long known. Uh, and in particular for researchers uh, looking for specific clues about personalities he met, about ideas, about certain dreams, uh, experiences. He had, they, it is known for uh, quite a while that the original protocols uh, contain additional material. Mm -hmm. Also, there was uh, the, the assumption that uh, the publisher and, and even some of the heirs were intervening before final publication. Uh, the American publisher thought certain topics, uh, certain personalities were not known to the U.S. readers, so they better be left out. The family thought some of the uh, the family details didn't belong uh, to 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 this uh, biography or uh, to the memories. Uh, so there, there was a, there is a curiosity in what he actually um, gave us information to Aniela Yaffe, and thanks to her meticulous work, uh, and um, we actually have uh, a fairly close recording of his initial statements, and this is what we're now preparing in collaboration with Robert Hinshaw for publication. So that will. Uh, many many of the uh, the stories uh, will be familiar fr from memories, but there's a bulk of additional uh, material that is unknown yet, and and the richness in in detail, and also uh, as it, as uh, it, it's more it's more raw. You you okay. get much you get much closer in the protocols to him actually speaking, though we all are aware it is already a first recording. But still, it, it feels like, you could say it feels like sitting with him in the study, uh, in Aniela Yaffe's seat and hear him talk. And that has for sure a certain appeal. He was a very good, uh, he, he was rhetorically very good. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a good speaker. Uh, uh, he had a good sense of humor. Um, and of course, you can see his brilliant mind working uh, through a range of topics, uh, fairly freely associating. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes these uh, conversations recorded things that were on his mind from last night's dreams and then he connects it to um, events that he experienced 50 years earlier. So he himself is not always super accurate uh, with dates and names, uh, which is understandable when you're in your 80s uh, looking back. But the interesting and fascinating thing is certainly the connections uh, he draws. And sometimes he spoke about the specific significant uh, experience or event on several occasions to Aniela Yaffe. And, and it is fascinating to see uh, which elements he remembered or, or emphasized uh, in these memories. 
There is one misconception, uh, actually two, um, that I would like for you to clear up here. Uh, and one is, I, I have to ask you, I, I asked you this uh, when we spoke uh, a few months ago, if, if you were willing to address this, and that is uh, something that Marie-Louise von Franz said to Suzanne Wagner in her interview in the Remembering Jung series, which made it into a matter of heart. It's about Jung's final vision, a vision he had at the end of his life that he relayed to one of his daughters. And von Franz said she put those notes in a drawer and she doesn't want to talk about them. Would you clear that up for us? Uh, yes, I, I got this question a number of times during, during my directorship at the foundation. Um, uh, what transpires is, is there at, so far we were not able to put our hand on something like a manuscript uh, or a full full notes of said vision. So what we have is von Franz's testimony, uh, though she wasn't the one present when he spoke about this vision. The one present was his daughter, Marianne Nierhus, who, if I remember correctly, uh, told it to Barbara Hanna, and she then uh, um, informed Marie-Louise von Franz. Uh, so, I, I, I understand the fascination I understand the fascination, and and von Franz is convinced that he that it was a big vision uh, about the end of humanity, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the problem really is with the source. It went through a number of hands until uh, von Franz really uh, got hold <laughs> of the content of this vision. So there's there's a. There's, there's an uncertainty. Uh, um, there's, there's a few traces of it, but, but it's, it, it's, for us, it's not enough to, 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 to assertively confirm uh, what the exact vision was. Also, you shouldn't, you shouldn't forget that was at the stage where he was. He was ill. Uh, yeah. He was in fevers. He was. It sounds a bit like he was in and out. Um, it's not even sure how how clearly his how clear his daughter understood what he he was mm. telling. Okay. And that I mean, but it is a good example of, uh, for. Uh, for what we aim for with the work at our foundation. These questions are important and, and obviously people are interested and rightfully so. But when the question comes up, uh, we're, not, we're not just trying to make a sensation of it, but what we're looking into is what are the real traces that we found? Do we, do we have uh, enough uh, either um, spoken evidence, um, uh, credible sources, written sources, uh, 
that would confirm or reject or that can um, support anything. So to me, it is it is still unclear uh, when I when I when I listen to von Franz's uh, recorded interview, it is still unclear uh, if she had any additional additional information. Uh, I it certainly wasn't herself that Jung told uh, that vision to, and there's there's. There's a likely margin of error. Uh, maybe margin of error is, is, is the wrong expression, but but you know, as a story is told through a number of people, uh, there's a risk that it gets enriched. Uh, right. So for, so for us, it's it's difficult um, to assess the statement sure. uh, that von Franz gave. In, in that interview. And we, when we work with editors and researchers, that is the one thing uh, we request is that they come up with a convincing argumentation and documentation of what uh, they state and present then to a wider audience. We, we see part of our job in a certain quality control or, or control of a certain standard. Uh, um, uh, there was a time and uh, there was a time earlier when speculation filled uh, more pages in books than the actual documented uh, substance. Uh, that has changed over uh, over the past two decades for sure, and there's there's really a new, I mean, in the wake of of Shamdasani's works and, and others, that there's a new generation uh, of of young, uh, but also established uh, researchers. I want to, to do justice to everyone who who are trying to really uh, pin down uh, things to what they can actually find in the documents and they in, in the archives and they go a long way to find uh, to find these sources I'm I'm, I'm impressed with uh, what we are then confronted with when they tell us look uh, in some place somewhere in someone's notebook there's this and that and that often leads us to new uh, traces and we are able to connect some of the, the loose ends in his uh, life story which is uh, tremendous of course when you're then finally able to to uh, bring about the full uh, uh, a full picture or at least a, a substantial pictures which is more than anecdotal yes and i do appreciate that about you uh, the other misconception I would love for you to clear up is something that I'm guilty of saying on this podcast several times, which is that a majority of Jung's work is still unpublished. And that is not true. It is. It, I, again, it, it may need a bit of explanation. It is true that that among the uh, the thousand the thousands of pages of manuscript material at ETH, there's still substantial unpublished uh, material. However, 
those who've edited the collected works, they they did their job, and uh, that means and and uh, Jung himself was still involved in the conception of that project, and so the collected works they contain the main uh, material and, and manuscripts. So what remains to be um, studied and considered for further publication are different categories, text variants, some clinical material from the early period. I mentioned correspondences. An important segment is, is notes made by third parties of Jung's talks, uh, lectures, seminars, interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly he didn't work with full, uh, fully elaborated manuscripts when he spoke uh, at university, at conferences, but he had, he had um, uh, sheets with, with uh, keywords. Uh, but then you had, at the time, as you had people taking stenographic notes, you are able to reconstruct uh, some of these seminars and lectures, thanks to these uh, note takers. And, and one of the, the biggest projects currently on the way, uh, and you are aware, is the publication of his ETH lectures, which ran from 1933 to 1942. And the uh, Philemon series, uh, is is currently um, editing these. So that means compiling, reconstructing his lecture from a set of, of notes from different note takers to an integral text uh, and make that uh, accessible as if it was a lecture manuscript. That's, that's a huge uh, project. Three volumes are out by now. The fourth is coming next, uh, soon this year. And there's four more volumes coming. The, be the beauty, again, of, of, of his lectures and seminars uh, is that you hear Jung speak. And, and yeah. if, if, you, if you read Jung, uh, uh, you are aware that his own manuscripts are, uh, are not always easy to, to read. It's a, it's a bit of work. Yeah. <laughs> the beauty of, of when he spoke was that it, it is more accessible. Mm -hmm. And in his ETA lecture series, he went basically through the whole development of, his, of the early uh, modern psychology and development of his own psychology up until that very moment. Uh, in a language that, at least uh, uh, for someone like myself, is more accessible, it is more vivid, there, there's the eventual anecdote which illustrates what he means, where he would rely on a more scientific way of speaking and writing in, 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 in his book publication. Uh, so, so that is something uh, that remains uh, to be brought to publications, then, then remaining material of fragments, drafts, concepts, but for sure, uh, autobiographical material, and I count the protocols, for example, in that category. Mm -hmm. The other category uh, that remained uh, largely unpublished was uh, the visual artistic material and yes. the Red Book has only opened. I mean, the Red Book was the cornerstone 
the stepping stone to to the publication of the Red Book into this world, which led us then to publish the Art of C.G. Jung volume, which you've mentioned earlier. So uh, this, together with Emma Jung's uh, literary and artistic estate, which is our new project uh, from the foundation side. So these are some of the the materials. So the idea, the idea that there are uh, large amounts is right uh, that that remain unpublished is is right and wrong. Okay. Uh, right in in the sense that these are many pages, but 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 a lot of this the unpublished material are variants, uh, versions, drafts of uh, already published texts. Also. Uh, as you are aware, he would rework his texts a lot uh, and republish in a new form. Uh, he would talk about uh, uh, the same topics in, 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 in a series of publications and, and seminars. So, so there's overlap with what is already, uh, partly there's overlap with what is already in the collected works. But yes, uh, there there remains uh, um, more material and uh, Philemon, the Philemon Foundation, which partners with us as a, as a donor and, and uh, by providing the expertise in, in editing uh, some of these materials, they, they, they have, a, they have a, a very uh, good pipeline of new publications uh, coming down the line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so our final topic for today is the book, The Art of C.G. Jung, which uh, was published by the foundation, edited by the foundation. And as you mentioned, your uncle Ulrich Horney, he began in the early 1990s to compile this information. And people know Jung for his writings, his lectures, interviews, but as you point out, few knew of the vital role that his visual art played. Again, uh, Carl Jung was <laughs> responsible for the lack of awareness of this, ah, right. this part uh, <laughs> of his work himself in, in the sense that during his lifetime he he didn't he only published very few of his paintings and that only anonymously mm -hmm. so he didn't disclose that he was actually the author of said Paintings. He included some uh, in the in the discussion of material uh, in the collected works, but but it it doesn't disclose that it, it, it they, these works were actually made by his own hand, mm -hmm. and and uh, with the red book. But, but he spoke. But he spoke about the fact uh, again in memories, dreams, and reflections uh, that he was not only writing was spending a, a substantial time uh, also drawing, painting, sculpturing in wood, carving in stone. Uh, those who visited him uh, at his tower retreat in Bollingen could, could see the results of such work. Or even uh, in Küsnacht, uh, in the house, there were traces of, of this side. Carl uh, was a was was very much a visual 
thinker. We discovered in the course of producing the art of C.G. Young volume. Uh, I mean, he he himself has written about it uh, that that there's uh, that that there are two ways of thinking, thinking in words, which was directed by logic and rational, and the other was non-directed thinking in images. And this is and and what we have as if we want to call it that artwork from his hand is exactly uh, the result of thinking in images. He, he, he was self-taught uh, uh, and he mastered uh, quite beautifully as again the Red Book witnesses a number of techniques as his sculpture witness and he was deeply engaged in in the discussion about art and the symbolic meaning of art. So he was very keen on, 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 on the visual. And as he uh, thought, sought a way to put his own dreams and fantasies mm -hmm. into a language, uh, he found that the image actually, he was, a, he was able to express uh, these representations much better in an imagery world than in actual words. Uh, I'm not telling any of our listeners anything new, I guess, uh, but it is still worth pointing out uh, uh, the level, the, the high level of artistic quality he achieved. Mm. And at the same time, it is worth recalling that he himself never viewed the results of his visual creative work as actual art. To him, it was always an expression of his soul and nature. That's an important uh, point to yeah. make. And, and it's a point we stress at the same time, he wasn't a Philistine when he came to the arts. He had a specific way of looking at arts, but he, but he was very much engaged uh, with the Zurich art scene in the early 20th century. Uh, the discussion of the meaning of art was very much a topic in his psychology club. Uh, and, uh, and he himself uh, built as, as we now know and, and are able uh, also to present uh, through these publications nowadays, he built up a whole imagery corpus uh, of his own, which, uh, which can only be described as deeply fascinating again. Yes, and you have two chapters in the book, along with Bettina Kaufman, uh, you wrote a chapter on Jung and modern art, but then you also wrote the chapter C.G. Jung, The Collector, which goes over all the, I kind of want to say eclectic collection, uh, mostly from his travels to Africa and to India and there are beautiful photos in this book. I love this book. I highly encourage the listeners to take a look at it. 
purchase a copy because it is something that is so rich. It also include the paintings that he did early on um, back in when he was in his 20s, right? But he started carving. I, I, I recall, actually, it's in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, the little two-inch mannequin that he carved at the end of his ruler, and he put it in a pencil box, and he made a little, a little bed for it. And I mean, just so creative. And and he was so influenced also by by other art and the his home is filled with beautiful art. That's correct. And and I mean what I presented in that chapter on, on Jung as, as a collector is only is only the beginning of that research. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean there's there's much more to be done and with the family archive and the museum now in place, I'm sure. Uh, there will be a deeper uh, investigation into his collection. It was mostly the the aim of that uh, book chapter to to illustrate the wide range, but also to find the thread that goes through his collection. You, you call it an eclectic collection, and that that is right. And when you first look at what what, what was what was in the house at the time of his death, then he's not like a specialist on a certain art period or a certain right. culture that he would roam about. And, but, but what, I, uh, what I stated in the article and, and what is my conviction is he was a, he was a collector of knowledge. And, and, and again, that knowledge that was was uh, contained mostly in, in, in symbolic representations. Mm-hmm. And, and that is why, why and, and his sense was always attuned uh, to such uh, images. So whenever he, he was traveling the world, he would not only take in personalities or nature, but he, he, would, he would always uh, connect his his own the development of his psychological work with what he saw and and obviously as, as some of his uh, fundamental uh, ideas such as as collective art, uh, unconscious and, and the archetypes he he was looking for traces that would prove his ideas yes. right uh, so whenever whenever he had another example of he would he would collect the be just a postcard with a picture of that, or he would draw a little sketch in one of his of his journals, or his agendas, or even uh, in some of his letters, he, he would include a little photo or uh, or a sketch of, of of an image or of a cultural um, imagery representation he thought remarkable, and that he could connect uh, to his other readings and 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 visual. Um, uh, repository, so to speak. So that is how I look at, at his collection. And, and in that sense, uh, also, the, the library is part of that collection. Mm-hmm. It, really, it really is, is a reflection of his, his interests and, and his work, and that makes the collection fascinating, apart from the fact that some of these objects obviously carry anecdotal um, uh, worth. Uh, of, of course, uh, where uh, s- somewhere in the family there's still an old stone axe he exchanged for his modern-day axe when he was on 
uh, on his expedition to East Africa. So having, uh, I mean, I find that fascinating when you have uh, the story to where he uh, got in possession of a certain object, uh, the context, which may tell you something how, how this object came into his collection or even why, or what, uh, with some objects, obviously they were gifts, uh, people knew of his interests, but others he, he actively uh, was purchasing, or, or uh, even, as I explained, he, he, was, uh, uh, he was able to exchange some of his own goods uh, to get ah. in possession of something with, like the old stone axe. I, I mentioned so. I, I find that I find this beautiful. It, it tells us something where where he where he was intrigued by an object, and and uh, so that there's hardly anything in my view in 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 his life and his his connection that that is just there by by coincidence. Uh-huh. And, and he he was someone who 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 put I I think the things that surrounded him, objects, books, they all you can be assured of most that they carried a special significance and meaning to him. And that is why uh, these are so important also when studying Jung and studying his work. That they are symbolic representations. And, And I did pull this out of the chapter. I have it in bold and underlined. You said, viewing the collection in the larger context of his research interests makes clear that Jung collected primarily knowledge, especially apparently lost, discarded, or hitherto inaccessible knowledge about the human psyche and its collective roots, assembled with a systematic desire, indeed a passion. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for your time today, for going over all of this information with us. And I would like to thank your family for making all of this available to us. It means so much. Thank you. Thank you very much again for having me, and uh, thank you for the audience who is listening to your podcast. Thank you. Please visit our website, speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G dot com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. So with special thanks to Dr. Carl C. Jung at the Foundation of the Works of C.G. Jung, Dr. Murray Stein, and Dr. Nancy swift Forlati. this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>